Well, in John chapter 19, Pilate presented the beaten and bloodied Jesus to the people with these words, Behold your king. It was an ironic moment. Jesus looked like no king at all. Weak, beaten, mocked, about to die a cruel criminal's death. Rejected by his own people who would claim Caesar as their king before this Jesus. Who would rather have this insurrectionist Barabbas and murderer freed than this Jesus. And yet he was the king. He was their king. Despite the rejection, he was their king and the world's king. Despite his apparent weakness and imminent death, he was the king. Pilate spoke better than he knew. About a thousand years before that, there was another ironic king declaration. But it's something of the inverse of what Pilate said about Jesus as the king. In 1 Samuel 12, two times the prophet Samuel says to the people, here is your king. And he is their king by their choice. Unlike Jesus, they've not rejected him. In fact, they have rejected God in seeking this king. Yes, he will be used of God for a time, but this king, Saul, is not the king. He's not the answer. Both Pilate and Samuel provide us with a reminder to gaze upon our king, to behold him, to see him, to say, here is your king. So who is your king? Who is on your throne, the throne of your heart and life? Who makes the rules? What is your salvation? Where does your allegiance lie? In what or in whom do you trust? What do you love? What do you worship? Gaze upon your king. Behold him. Is it a king of God's own choosing? Or is it a king of your own making? Well, these are the kinds of questions that we've been asking ourselves as we study the book of 1 Samuel. And we've been seeing again and again and again that it's a story almost 3,000 years old, and yet it has huge relevance for us today because it exposes the problem that's even older than the book of 1 Samuel. The problem of human rebellion against the true and living God. 1 Samuel has huge relevance because it exposes the universal problem, but also because it foreshadows the coming of true salvation and the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 11. As we look at chapters 11 and 12 today of the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see three scenes in these two chapters, three scenes. The last scene being a sermon by Samuel, which has uh, four parts to it, four themes, we could say. So you can notice on the sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, 
and follow along there. We've got three scenes and then the last scene with four parts or themes to it. The first scene we could call a new threat. A new threat, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. It's a new threat for Israel in a sense. In a sense, it's an old threat. It's the Ammonites, one of Israel's longtime foes. They've gone up against this people many times before, but now the Ammonites have a new king, Nahash. And he is particularly ruthless. Verse 1 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. How desperate the Israelites of Jabesh Gilead must have felt that they would consider this an option. They would consider joining forces with Nahash, putting themselves under his ungodly reign. In a sense, no longer being Israelites. He would gouge out the right eye of all of them if they would be his. It would be a particularly signaling signifying sort of statement to be missing the right eye. It means they're useless for battle. The shield in those days covered the left eye. The right eye is the one you looked out from and and fought. You fought with, and, and not having the right eye means they will be in his care and his servants, not fighting against him forever and ever. And it's also ruthless. Not generous, by the way, when Nahash allows them seven days to look for a deliverer. That's not gracious. That's not polite. That's not according to some unspoken rules of battle in the ancient Near East. Nahash assumes that there's no deliverer for Israel. It's like he's saying, yeah, go ahead, take seven days. And then come back, and you'll be all the more defeated. I think I'll even have more fun uh, cutting out your eyes after you've searched for a deliverer and can't find one. That will heap up the reproach that I want to put on Israel. It will prove my power, my authority, my reign all the more. Now remember this book of 1 Samuel began with a prayer song from a godly woman named Hannah. And she celebrated the coming day when God would thunder against all his enemies. He would crush them. Long before that, God promised that one day his people would dwell in the land in safety, with peace on all sides, and rest all around them. We saw hints of that happening in 1 Samuel 5. Among the Philistines, God defeating them. 
We saw hints of it again in chapter 7 where God's people fought the Philistines again. And by God's doing, they conquered them. But in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, the threat from the opposition seems to be renewed and Israel loses heart. Really, we could say Israel loses faith. That's the chapter where they demand a king like the nations. Who will, they say, who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. This is, in essence, a rejection of Yahweh, their God, their king, their mighty warrior who's been responsible for every victory that's come thus far. Nevertheless, because of their sin and in judgment, God grants their demand for a king. Last week in chapters 9 and 10, we met that new king. Israel's first king, Saul, we said last week he's a mixed bag. We saw seedlings of blessings and blunders last week. And so he's judgment for the people. He's what God is giving God is giving them what they asked for, a king like the nations. And yet, Saul is also salvation for the people. Saul will rescue them from the surrounding threats. This is how God works often. Even in his judgment, there's mercy. His judgment is never as fierce as it could be. Especially with his covenant people, he never fully gives them what they deserve. He's doing two things at once with Saul. It's judgment. They're getting what they demanded. A king like the nations. On the other hand, he's better than that. He will for a time be Israel's rescue. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this new threat of chapter 11 with Nahash and the Ammonites comes together with the stream of Saul and his story now in chapter 11. We're not sure how these two streams will meet, though, are we? The first section of of these two chapters we're looking at this morning is a new threat, the Ammonites, but then secondly, we see a new Savior King, a new Savior King. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. It says, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, there he is, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. That is, about this deal going on in Jabesh Gilead and the threat that's still looming there for those people. Verse 5 says, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Before we can get our hopes up, or before we can read on in the story and see some good stuff that is going to come, we'll see it in just a a bit here. We have to read between the lines of verses 4 and 5 to see something that's not so promising. These verses speak volumes by what they don't say. The silence should be deafening here. Remember in chapter 10, it ended with Saul's inauguration as king. It ended with the people shouting, Long live the king! But then, look at verse 26 of chapter 10. It also subtly ended with, Saul went to his home. 
It seemed inconsequential at the time. But now we get to chapter 11, and Saul is still at home. And what's he doing? He's farming. He's back to farming. Chapter 9 began with Saul, commissioned by his dad, to go look for the family donkeys. They're on the loose again. He's a farmer. Then chapter 10 was loaded with all kinds of stuff about his commission as king. A secret anointing by Samuel. And, and then the inauguration publicly at the end of chapter 10. And now chapter 11, verse 5. There's this big threat going on, and Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. In other words, as Saul re-enters the picture in chapter 11, he isn't at all acting like Israel's king. It's as if that stuff never happened. The threat of Jabesh Gilead is so severe their only hope is a seven-day search for a deliverer. I should stand out. They're searching for a deliverer. Give us seven days to go all through the land to see if there's anyone who will lead us, anyone whose hope, who, who we can put hope in. There's no deliverer these days. Saul isn't on anyone's radar the messengers show up in Saul's hometown. We're told that as the readers. It went to Gibeah of Saul. But the messengers seem unaware of that fact, or perhaps they feel it's irrelevant. They just show up in any town, and they spread the news there. They don't ask for Saul. They simply make a public announcement. Saul overhears it as he comes in from the field. He has to be told secondhand what's going on because he's a farmer. All of this should be shocking to us. Remember the providential turns of events in, in, in chapter 9 and 10 leading Saul to Samuel? Remember the, the private anointing where, where Samuel commissioned Saul to not only rule God's people on God's behalf, but also to rescue them from the hand of their enemies. Remember the threefold confirmation of signs in chapter 10 that were given to Saul in order to, to prove that God was in this and behind it and orchestrating it, and he was going to be God's man. Remember the spirit coming upon Saul Remember, he was changed into another man. Remember, he was prophetic. God was at work. God was doing something. Remember the people's celebration. Long live the king. And you turn the page. And the next chapter shows Saul acting like nothing happened at all. And yet we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? Because Saul's a mixed bag. And we saw potent foreshadows last week of Saul's weakness and reluctance. Remember his uncle saying, hey Saul, where you been? And Saul could only say, out looking for donkeys. Just that. And the uncle says, what did Samuel say to you? He says, the donkeys are okay. Just that. 
And how did the chapter end there after the lot fell to Saul and it was public and clear that this was God's doing? He was God's man. He was going to be Israel's first prince or king. Saul was nowhere to be found. Instead, he was hiding in the luggage. And so we shouldn't be shocked that in chapter 11 we find him at home whistling Dixie behind some cows. <laughs> On the other, other hand, I know that's three hands, but... On the other, other hand, God promised that he would use Saul to defeat, to defeat Israel's enemies. And it was God that came up with that. And God's spirit was upon Saul in chapter 10. And so we really shouldn't be surprised by what comes next in chapter 12. It started out looking not promising in chapter 12. And then, oh, it turns a corner. Verse 6. And the Spirit of God, again, rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So what did he do? Get this, verses 7 to 10, I won't read it, just summarize it. Saul then cuts up some oxen, piece by piece, and he sends the messengers all around the area with chunks of this, these oxen, and he says, put a chunk of oxen on each guy's front lawn and tell them this message. If they don't come out and fight the Ammonites with me, they will go down like these oxen. I'll come back, and what happened to these oxen will happen to them. That's bold and courageous, isn't it? And it's good leadership, apparently, because the people all came out at once. 330,000 men in all went to war with King Saul. What happened? Verse 11. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived of the Ammonites were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Finally, here it is, God's man doing God's thing, gaining victory with God's power. Oh, what a difference the Spirit makes, right? I mean, the Spirit came upon Saul, and his anger was kindled, and he led the people, and he wrought victory by God's blessing. What a difference the Spirit makes. We shouldn't think that this is something like what we call in the New Testament regeneration or the new birth or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we Christians have. That's not what Saul had. He had a temporary blessing of God's power by his spirit. But we should note this. It's the same spirit who's in us, who's at work through us, who empowers us to witness, who leads us in truth who illuminates God's word, the spirit who intercedes for us and prays on our behalf. He fixes prayers for us, did you know? The spirit. Oh, what a difference the spirit makes. Just look at Saul. Yeah, the military success 
is great. So great, and, and Saul's leadership so approved by the people, their first thoughts go back to those scoundrels in chapter 10. Worthless men, they were called. At Saul's inauguration, verse 27 of chapter 10, some worthless men said, can this man save us? And they despised him, it said. Well, now, the people in chapter 12, or chapter 11, think about those people, those insurrectionists. It says in verse 12, the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. All looks to be on the up and up. I know that looks simply like bad revenge here, but it signals a universal recognition of Saul's kingship. Let's find anyone in the land who doesn't support this guy, and let's get rid of them. All seems to be on the up and up. Israel has its king, and, and Israel has blessing from God because the king is blessed. The enemy has been pushed back, and... The Spirit of God rests upon this king. And a cherry on top? He's a gracious king. So in verse 13, Saul says, No, no, we're, we're not going to kill the guys who opposed me. We're not going to do that. Why not? Look at verse 13. Because the Lord has worked salvation in Israel today. The Lord has done it. He's gracious. He's humble. He's God-glorifying. He's just what Genesis 17 called for in Israel's king. At least here. He's just what Genesis 17 said. We need a king who goes God's way. We need a king who's humble, who's for the people, who's gracious. And yet, he's strong as well. He's a, a savior king. Then Samuel talks about a renewed kingdom. But what does he have in mind? That's the third scene. A renewed kingdom? Question mark. What does he have in mind by this? Well, verse 14 of chapter 11, it says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal in there." renew the kingdom now it's easy to skip over names of places in the bible are you good at this i confess i am most of us don't keep track of places in the bible let alone have a map of the ancient near east in our minds and so when we read places we go oh yeah right there oh yeah over here oh they went this way most of us don't have that and most of the time that's fine we can get away with it. Oftentimes in a story, the place or the name of the place isn't crucial to understanding the story. But sometimes in the Bible, the story has a place, and that place is significant. Here Samuel says, come and let us go to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? You might remember that a couple of times now already in this book, Samuel has called all Israel together at Mitzpah. At Mitzpah. Now, 
It switched. It's not Mitzvah. It's Gilgal. Why Gilgal? The answer is in Joshua chapter 4 and 5. Back there, Joshua 4 and 5. In Joshua 4, the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. It was like that Red Sea parting. Take two. They escaped from their enemies. They entered the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. And on the other side of the Jordan is a little place called Gilgal. And there Joshua set up a memorial, 12 stones. And he preached to the people there to remember what God had done, to remember their God who has wrought the victory for them once again. Then in Joshua 5, get this, he calls all the men to a fresh circumcision. Yeah, a second circumcision, which sounds very, very weird to us. But it's a symbolic sign of a fresh start, of a new beginning. A second circumcision, a fresh circumcision, is a sign of a fresh and deeper consecration from the people, marked not least by the commitment involved. And all this at Gilgal. Gilgal's a big deal. When an Israelite in these days, the days of Samuel, would hear Gilgal, he'd think of that Joshua moment. First entering the land, fully consecrated to God, he'd think of the kingdom beginning in its place at its time. So in 1 Samuel 11, when Samuel says, let's go to Gilgal, He's essentially saying, let's go back to the beginning. Remember that, that quote, Vince Lombardi, who in the locker room one day said, gentlemen, this is a football. Let's start with that. This is a football. I'm sure you've all heard that. Well, that's what Samuel's doing here. Gentlemen, let's go back to Gilgal for a new beginning a start-over moment. In fact, it's explicitly the case because he says, we'll go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. So to renew the kingdom is not about having a phase two with Saul as now the king. He is going to be the king, but it's not about a new kingdom with Saul as king. He's calling the people to renew God's kingdom. He's calling the people to get back to basics. It's not about a forward-looking or progressive kind of moment renewing the kingdom in verse 14. Instead, it's a backward-looking one. Get back to the good old days when God is your God, when God was your rescuer, when you knew that clear as a bell, when you knew your covenant-making Lord as the only king and God. In Israel. Oh, you'll move forward, yes, with a human king named Saul. But Israel, not without God as your king. It's not clear whether the people get the significance of Gilgal and renew the kingdom. It's probable they didn't. 
Look at verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What we'll see from here on out is Samuel's sermon to the people at Gilgal. Samuel preaches. That's all of chapter 12. What will he say to them? Now, I, I can't remember specifics of what I'm about to tell you, but I, I have this recollect, recollection that more than once this kind of thing has happened in my marriage. My wife and I are at a party. We're having a good time with friends. We're maybe telling stories. Jokes are being told. Laughing is going on. And then somewhere along the line, I say something about my wife in front of my wife that she either didn't want me to divulge to our friends or that was in some way a slight put-down of her right in front of our friends. Have you ever done one of those? You say it just for a cheap laugh? You know, like you just get in this rhythm of laughing and telling jokes and laughing and telling jokes and oh, foot in mouth. What happened? So maybe I try to fix it right there in front of our friends and I, ah, I say something about, you know, why I said that. And, you know, in a laughing sort of way, I apologize. Or maybe it's more serious than that and a little bit later the conversation breaks up and she's over there by the chip dip and I come up behind her and grab her and say, hey, sorry about that. I'm really sorry. I'm stupid, I know. But either way, the party goes on. We act normal. Laughing continues. More stories are told. I said I was sorry. My wife is cool. We're good. I forget anything even happened. And then we get in the car. <laughs> Maybe I'm still laughing as we get in the car. <laughs> Maybe I'm talking about what chip dip I liked the most or that story that so-and-so told. Maybe I start planning what's next. Hey, we got time. You know, it's, it's still early. You want to go home and watch a movie? Maybe I start fiddling with the radio. Turn it up. I like this song. Yeah. And then I notice, even though it's summer, it's freezing in the car. <laughs> this chill in the air, she's silent. And I make the dumb mistake of saying, what's wrong? And then she tells me. And I realize that whatever I thought I settled before, I hadn't, right? It was too small of a response. Business had not been taken care of at the party. I failed to grasp the seriousness of my sin. Well, something like that is about to happen in 1 Samuel 12. The transition from chapter 11's laughter and celebration and consecration and sacrifice and peace offerings and Saul now king. Victory over the Ammonites. Notice it said, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. No mention of Samuel. Samuel's in the car waiting. <laughs> you can imagine the people celebrating like they are at the end of 
of chapter 11, and, and someone says, what's that? Samuel's going to preach now? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. A real attaboy kind of sermon, I bet. Why not? Well, let's see what he says. He says, if we're going to renew the kingdom, then first repent of your rejections. Repent of all your rejections. This is the first of four themes in Samuel's sermon in chapter 12. Rejections plural? Why did I say plural? Well, in their demand for a king, they have primarily rejected God as their king, but they have also rejected Samuel as God's man for the time being. They've rejected Samuel as their prophet and judge. They said to Samuel, give us a king to judge us. It was a rejection of Samuel. Samuel will get to their rejection of God in verses 6 to 12. But first, he talks about their rejection of him. And he does so by putting himself on the stand. He uses trial language. He, in essence, uh, questions himself in front of the people and thereby questions them. He's trying to prove his innocence and their guilt and thus their sinfulness in rejecting him. So look at verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkeys have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said, them, said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Literally in the Hebrew, they just say, Witness. They agree. They've rejected Samuel. Samuel contrasts himself with Saul and with a king like the nations. Remember in chapter 8, he warned, a king like the nations will take and take and take. And here he says, have I taken any of your ox? Have I taken any of your donkeys? He contrasts himself with his sons. Remember in chapter 8, they were known for bribes as judges. They perverted justice. Have I defrauded you? Have I taken a bribe? He contrasts his ministry with that of the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, back in chapter 2. Have I oppressed anyone, he says? And of course, the people have to concede, no, Samuel has been faultless. He's done nothing but good to them by God's grace. And God is now witness to that fact. 
So now he puts the people in the dock in this courtroom scene. Notice verse 7, that legal language, take your stand. He puts the people in the dock and defends God. So let's now read the next section. Verse 6, Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of the Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, a king will reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Their demand for a king in chapter 8 is reverberating here loud and clear, almost like an exponential reverberation. They thought it was done. They thought they've moved on. They thought they settled it. Maybe it was wrong back then, but now God's blessing. Now the Ammonites have been defeated. Now Saul is king and the sacrifices have been made. We've went to Gilgal. We've renewed the kingdom. What's that, Samuel? You want to go back? I thought we were done with that. I thought we moved past that. Oh, no, no. We got some things to settle back there. Their demand for a king, you can see, dominates Samuel's sermon in chapter 12. Look at verse 12. No, but a king shall reign over us, is what you said. Look at verse 13. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, you asked him, and the Lord has set over you a king. Look at, look at that, the second half of verse 17. See that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, that wickedness of asking for yourselves a king. The end of verse 19. Now they respond in repentance, finally. We'll get there in a second. But they say, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And then in verse 25, let's see what the future holds. If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You see, it's just reverberating this problem of rejecting God by demanding for a king. It's a new manifestation of an old problem. 
God's people in the Old Testament lived through this cycle. God's faithfulness leading to their forgetfulness and sin. Then God's judgment for a time until they cry out and drop their idols. They repent and the Lord brings rescue. They rejoice for a moment and then the cycle starts all over again with sin. Forgetfulness. Judgment. Waiting for a time then crying for help. God giving rescue. It's a cycle. It's an old cycle and that's why Samuel does this history lesson. And yet it has this new manifestation in their day when they demand a king and reject their God. It's a cycle that we today are probably sometimes familiar with. Are you? God is faithful. We enjoy it for a little bit. And in various ways, some more subtle than their forgetfulness here, we forget him. We embrace sin. We let our hearts get hardened to him and his ways. And then, in his mercy, God brings some form of discipline. Maybe we get caught. Maybe, maybe it's illness. Maybe it's poverty. Job loss. Anything that gets you to pray. Anything that makes you wonder why and forces you to crack open your Bible again. Sweep away the dust. And remember some psalms that gave you encouragement in years past. It's a cycle we're probably familiar with. God's discipline is kind. Don't wait for it to be more painful, though. Repent and turn to him. He says, repent of your rejection of God. He also says, recognize God's judgment. Saul is part of God's judgment. He talks about that in verse 13. But Samuel also gives them a fresh sign of God's power and judgment. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 12. Here Samuel says in his sermon, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. This is during wheat harvest, which are dry summer months, maybe May and June. And in this place, rain would have been utterly strange, like Snow in Miami. Maybe snow in Miami in the summer. You suppose it's possible, but it would be really, really weird. So Samuel says God's going to bring a thunderous rainstorm. 
And he's going to bring it during your wheat harvest. I, I don't know much about farming, but I, I think you need dryness when you're harvesting wheat. It's not only that God is going to show himself a God who's in control of weather, a God who thunders in the heavens, show his power through rain now, thunder there. But he's also going to take out their crops. Their wheat crops are done for the year. Rain can't happen when they're trying to harvest. It shows God's judgment and shows what judgment may come Look at verse 18. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They recognized God's power and his control, his sovereignty. They recognized their utter dependence upon him. I mean, no human king is so responsible for the success or lack thereof, of your crops. They recognize God's potential judgment on them because they recognize their sin. Finally, they recognize their sin and the wickedness of their sin. And so verse 19, they say to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Notice, they feel like they're unworthy to, to be the Lord's servants. Pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, Samuel. We feel like we've lost him as our God. Pray that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They finally come to see that all along their first and biggest problem wasn't Philistines or Ammonites or worthless sons of Samuel or a lack of having a king. Their biggest problem was right inside. Their biggest problem was themselves, their sin. If the kingdom will be renewed, then you'll have to Renew your allegiance. Samuel says, renew your allegiance to Yahweh. The third part of his sermon, verses 19 to 25. We already saw, well, we, we didn't read it, I don't believe. Verse 14 and 15. He, he says there, if you'll fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commands of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord God, your, the Lord your God, it will be well. Verse 15, but if not, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This is also the theme upon which the sermon ends. Look at verse 20 as we read this last section. Samuel said to all the people, he said, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things, idols that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. They are nada. They are zero. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I asked him to pray for me. He said, I'll pray for you and instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. It's another fork in the road for God's people. They've repented. They've prayed for help. They see their need. They know that God is a merciful God. But will they go their own way once again? Will they turn aside to idols again? It's another fork in the road. As they go, so will the king goes. As the king goes, so will the people go. As it goes between them and their God, so it will go for them individually and as a nation as a whole. How's it going to go? What a description of our covenant responsibilities even today. Our covenant responsibilities before God. We saw at the end of verse 20, Don't turn aside from following him. We saw in verse 21, don't turn aside to the empty things of this world, whether real idols, statues to worship, or or things of our culture that we practically and functionally worship as we trust in them, serve them, hunger and lust for them. In verse 24, he says, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart and keep remembering, considering, chewing on all the great things the Lord has done for you. So much of this rests upon this thing of remembering and not forgetting. That's where it always went bad for Israel. The Lord was faithful and they forgot and turned aside. Then God brought judgment. Eventually they cried out. He brought rescue. And then they rejoiced. Again, we praise praise God for his discipline. Sometimes you have to go back before you can go forward. But we go forward in a mark of confidence, a note of confidence, not in ourselves or in our resolve, but in God's faithfulness. That's the last little bit to consider in this sermon from Samuel. Revel in God's faithfulness. It's not a whole section, but it's scattered throughout. That's what the whole historical review was was doing in verses 6 through 12. Revel in God's faithfulness. He's more committed to you than you are to you. So don't be afraid, he said in verse 20. Ironically, Fearing God is also commanded in this passage. So there's a way in which we're to to fear God, stand in awe of him. He's the one who thunders. He's our covenant-making king. And yet, another sense in which we, we have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid. Why? Verse 22 is the key here. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great namesake, for his reputation and glory, because of his promises, because it has pleased the Lord to freely decide to make a people for himself. 
This thing rests on his glory and reputation, his commitment and his power and work and patience, not yours or mine. Proof that it rests on him? Well, you can look back to the covenant he made with Abraham, or you can look forward to the coming of the king who died in our place. If God didn't spare his own son but gave him up freely for us, how will he not also with Jesus freely give us all things? All things. He's the king. The king. Behold your king. Behold him. Stare at him. Gaze upon him in his beauty, in his mercy, in his love, his power and strength, his glory and goodness. What's going on in 1 Samuel 11 and 12 is something we could call covenant renewal. Many times in the Old Testament, God gathered his people together as one and a leader preached to them, reminded them of of judgment, reminded them of promises, and got them to reaffirm their faith and their consecration to the Lord. You can think of it with four C's. There was always confession of sin, cleansing from sin, consecration to God, and communion with God. And scattered throughout are reminders of God's promises, good promises, and also ones of judgment. Covenant renewals. It happened often under Moses. It happened often under Joshua. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 12. That's what's happening here right now. That's what Sunday morning corporate worship is about. What do we do? We take a fresh appraisal of our need for him. We take a fresh appraisal of God's promises to us. We take a fresh appraisal of our faith and our trust in him to to remind ourselves we still believe this thing. It's for real. We take a fresh appraisal of our resolve to be his people and to do what he says. So we leave here changed and on mission and eager to glorify the Lord in every corner of our lives. These things are dictate what we do on a Sunday morning. That's why we sometimes confess sin together in corporate prayer. But we're following this old tradition of God's people being assembled together in God's presence to once again see their need, to once again confess their sin, to once again confess that there's no hope apart from God's covenant mercy, to receive forgiveness and, and hear it afresh to be assured, and to commune with him, and to once again resolve that we will be his people, because he's our Lord, and he has done great things. God is good to assemble his people like this, even on a snowy, snowy day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your mercy. We thank you for your commitment to your own glory. We thankful, Lord, we thank you for your, your faithfulness. 
As your people, we ask that we would serve you faithfully and with our whole hearts. We pray you'd help us to trust you, to align ourselves under you, to revel in your faithfulness, to repent when we reject you and recognize your discipline or even eventually if we continue to go astray, your, your judgment. Lord, we pray you'd keep us from that. For your namesake, we trust in Jesus. Not chariots, not princes, not kings, not swords, not spears, but in the Savior who died in our place. We pray in his name.